You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Eight million seventy thousand two hundred and three, eight million seventy thousand two hundred four, eight million seventy thousand two hundred five, eight million seventy thousand. There are nearly nine million species of animal on Earth, according to the latest count. Eight million seventy thousand two hundred seven. Wait, I counted you, Bacillus fusiformis, twice. Blast it! Where was I? And yet, we don't think that's enough. Throughout history, we've hankered for more. Werewolves, mermaids, centaurs, chupacabras. Yes, the stripes on the zebra are divine, but how about something truly fantastical, with hooves and a horn? Even unicorns. But even if we failed to find these creatures, people still bet that there are exotic, undiscovered animals. Or, Or something familiar to us, yet fantastic. A half-man, half-ape? Such as Bigfoot or the abominable snowman. We've always been drawn to the idea of monsters and mythical creatures. Or, now I'm totally blue-skying here, how about a seven-armed ostrich? But one of the arms is really a Phillips-head screwdriver, and if you twist it just Some right... Some will remain imaginary forever, but not all. Fine, fine. Then I'll take the prehistoric sea fish with creepy hollow eyes. Triassic Park, yes, Triassic, is the new black. Not all that seems fabulous is fable. Consider a primitive fish that's been around since before the dinosaurs, but was considered extinct until it was discovered. I'm Seth Chostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, where we separate fact from fiction and science from pseudoscience, because it's a zoo out there. Consider this. Some animals we think we see are imaginary, and some that we thought were imaginary turn up after all. Supposed sightings of the ivory-billed woodpecker keep it flitting between extinction and existence. There's a name for studying hidden animals and animals that are thought to be extinct but maybe aren't, and creatures that are not identified, although they're claimed to exist, cryptozoology. So what's really out there? It's skeptic check. But don't take our word for it. Okay, in my business, I'm frequently asked to sift through questionable evidence for extraordinary creatures, and an alien from another planet would certainly fill that bill. My email inbox, it gets stuffed with messages with proof, supposed proof, that they're here. Very often, the attachments contain blurry photographs of distant aircraft or convoluted clouds or rock formations on Mars. It's never a high-res photo of an actual alien. And no one ever sends me the kind of hard evidence that a scientist would accept. A box of spaceship parts or a snippet of extraterrestrial DNA. On the other hand, I do have a nice collection of pretty cloud photos, so I guess it's not all bad. Biologists and zoologists have to separate fact from fiction as well in dealing with extraordinary claims. There are sightings of Yeti, the nasty beast that lives above the snow line in the Himalayas, and of Bigfoot, the wardrobe-challenged wanderer of the Pacific Northwest. You may remember that a few years back, Big Picture Science attended a press conference with a self-described professional Bigfoot hunter. He introduced two guys from Georgia who had solid evidence for the hairy guy, a dead Bigfoot. Habeas corpus? Well, the body was stashed in an ice chest. I mean, who wouldn't want to attend this press conference? I'll tell you this. What I seen, what I touched, what I felt, what I prodded, was not a mask that was sewn on a a bear hide, okay? 
and what I smelt also, all right? Turns out, the publicity stunt did nothing more than keep traffic up at this guy's Bigfoot website and maybe sell some souvenirs. Mind you, the ice chest wasn't empty. It had ice and a gorilla costume. Yet people continue to believe in Bigfoot and other mythical creatures. Donald Prothero is a geologist and paleontologist who specializes in mammals. He's the co-author of Abominable Science, Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and other famous cryptids. And he has insight into why we continue to hope that such fanciful creatures exist. Pretty much boils down to the fact that we're probably the first and only civilization in the history of humanity has not had a firm belief in monsters and supernatural creatures. And then with this world of science and skepticism, we've tried to push those back and try to uh, unroot them. But it's so deeply rooted in our psyche, I don't think it ever go away. So, in fact, we're not special in believing in these things. In fact, if we're special, it's because we believe a little less in them. That's right. We're unusual in that regard. I mean, every other culture in the past has always had monsters and things like that that was real to them as anything else. Well, when I hear claims that someone has sighted the Loch Ness Monster or a Yeti, I kind of roll my eyes. But after all, we do find hundreds, maybe many hundreds, of new species every year. So should I put the brakes on my eyeball rolling? I mean, this sounds like (laughs) something that happens. Well, there's a big difference here. Uh, Zoologists, indeed, are finding new animals all the time, but they're usually smaller animals that are usually very similar to animals that we're already familiar with. In most cases, we already had them and didn't recognize them as new species until much later. And that's very different from something that's a zoological oddity like a Bigfoot or a Loch Ness Monster, which doesn't fit. And that's back to the definition that cryptozoologists have always used. They said it had to be extraordinary, it had to be uh, shocking, it had to be unusual, not just another species that was always, uh, you know, conventional. But some of the species we found in the past, I don't know, 100 years look pretty unusual to me. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Komodo dragons right. or okapis, uh, certain squids, maybe the coelacanth. Yeah. I mean— these would be regarded by many people as monsters. Uh-huh. Yes, there's a big difference there. Uh, for animals that live on land, for example, like mountain gorillas and okapis, they were found in 1901. That's more than a century ago. And then uh, the Komodo dragon only a decade or so after that. And there have not been any sizable animals like that discovered since about the 1930s or so. And even though there are more zoologists than ever before looking at more areas of the planet. So this is why we don't think it's likely these things will be found in the future, that there's a lot less to be looking for now. The planet is very crowded. The world's jungles are not nearly as wild and untamed as they once were. So, Don, can you give me an example of one of your favorite cryptids? Yeah, let's take the Loch Ness Monster, for example. Uh, People think that there were reports of this thing back centuries, but as my co-author Daniel Loxon pointed out when he did a very, very careful digging through all the records of it, all the records of it prior to about 1933 were very vague and not very well established, and they don't really describe the same thing. And then we get this impact of the movie King Kong, the original King Kong from 1933, which one of the uh, first witnesses of uh, Loch Ness Monster by the name of Spicer saw the movie, and then there is, in fact, a stop-motion animation sequence of a plesiosaur in King Kong, and that apparently is the first time and only time there's been a report of a plesiosaur-like beast in King in Loch Ness, and then all the copycats for the next decade were following that first report. Could you tell me something about the description? What what did they say they saw? Descriptions are all over the place, you know, from something that looks more like a fish to something that could be easily mistaken for one of the harbor seals that actually gets into Loch Ness. Uh, there's lots and lots of versions of it, but what they don't consistently show is like a plesiosaur until after the uh, King Kong movie was released. Then after that, they all try to look like a plesiosaur as much as possible. Maybe you could describe a plesiosaur. Plesiosaurs are extinct marine reptiles. The most familiar ones have very long sort of snake-like necks and a sort of a short body with big four big paddle-like fins. And uh, we have lots of them in museums all over the world, but they are very clearly extinct and have been for 65 million years. Okay, in the case of the Loch Ness Monster, and to get back a little bit to this question of why, in principle, one should be skeptical, you know, they, they never see two or three of these guys. It That's sounds right. like there aren't very many in that lake, and that makes me wonder, uh, what keeps up the population? I mean... Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a lot of stuff that field ecology and, and population ecology inform us about how living populations work that are very applicable to understanding what's going on with cryptids. In this particular case, uh, there's crucial things here. Yes, almost all these things have to be a population for them to survive for very long. 
And the, the, what we're seeing instead is that the more people look, the less they see, which does not support the idea that there should be many of them. Uh, and also what we know from ecology, there's a certain size of body of water you have to have to support an animal of a certain body size. And Loch Ness is not big enough to support a population of animals this size. Uh, that's actually a very barren lake with very little in the way of nutrition and very little in the way of a fish population or anything for them to eat. And so that's I mean, strong ecological arguments against them. And then on top of that, there's a geological argument they never seem to address, which is only 20,000 years ago, Loch Ness was covered with a mile of ice at the end of the last ice age. Now, where do you put him while he's waiting for the ice to go away? It can't be frozen the ice. And the Loch Ness is virtually landlocked. It doesn't have any thing to do, any way to get to, to it except for a very small channel. It's a few seals are navigated, but nothing bigger. I often see these documentaries where guys go out in a small boat with all sorts of sonar equipment or what looks like yeah. sonar equipment into Loch Ness, hoping to find Nessie. Uh, should I take these things seriously or is this just... Uh entertainment. That is exactly what it is, entertainment. Uh, my friend Sharon Hill, who works in cryptozoology as well, calls it sham science because these people are using scientific tools and scientific uh, equipment, but they're not thinking like scientists, right? Science is not about chasing little monsters in the, in the ocean. It's about thinking scientifically, testing hypotheses, and especially being careful about quality of evidence. And that's the biggest problem. Instead of saying, okay, I don't know what this blip on the radar is, therefore, it's Loch Ness Monster, the proper scientific way to address it. I don't know what this blip on the radar is, therefore it's unknown. <laughs> well, moving from the depths of the lake into higher altitudes, let's talk a little bit about a Yeti. What is a Yeti supposed to be? A Yeti is an old legend that's found in Tibetan and Nepalese culture and uh, various parts of the Himalayas. And yet, of course, it has become part of our culture because there was a, a series of expeditions in the 1920s and so on when they were trying to first make an ascent of Everest, and the British were mostly in charge of this. And during those expeditions, one of the, their porters came down and talked to a tabloid reporter in Calcutta, and he turned this uh, Nepalese word, the filthy man of the wild snows, into abominable snowman. And that one title was a PR stroke of genius because suddenly a monster that nobody heard about was all over the planet in all the media at that time and has been ever since. What is the abominable snowman supposed to look like? Because I go to my local supermarket and they have uh, Yeti fruits and vegetables and it looks like some white furry guy. Yep. Well, the irony is the original accounts that supposedly describe the Yeti describe a dark black or brown furred animal walking around in somewhat human-like fashion and that never once do they ever in those areas refer to it as in white fur. That's all a transformation that it endured as it became part of American culture. And that's not the way any of the original accounts. Uh, just as an aside, the Yeti is pretty important in Nepal, is it not? I, I believe their national airline is Yeti Airlines. That's correct. I can imagine the slogan, are you ready to fly Yeti yet? That's right. <laughs> and uh, if you travel around Kathmandu like I have, it's one of their biggest industries is tourists uh, acquiring Yeti souvenirs. And Yeti knickknacks, uh, just like every other cryptid, there's almost always an area where the big, biggest reason why the myth doesn't die is it's good for tourism. So what is the best evidence for the Yeti? What do, what do people trot out when they say, look, this thing exists? Most of it is accounts of footprints and, of course, the usual eyewitness accounts that I don't trust. And then we look closely at the footprint evidence. That's, it turns out those have also got problems in the way they were constructed and the way they're photographed. Uh, There's very likely, for example, a lot of those footprints can easily be made by what we think is the real Yeti, which is the Himalayan brown bear walking on top of its paw prints. So if you watch a bear walk, its front feet will land and then its hind feet will enlarge the footprint of the front feet. And those, when you melt them a bit, will look just like a Yeti footprint. So the best evidence is something you could reproduce with a bear. That's right. In fact, many of the people in recent years who were once Yeti believers have all come to realize the Himalayan brown bear is probably what there is in the way of reality behind the myth. Don, to what extent is the evidence for these cryptids hoaxed? Uh, yes, in fact, a high percentage of a lot of the evidence is known to be hoaxes, even by those who are believers in the cryptids. A uh, classic case of this is, of course, among the Bigfoot stories. Nearly all the early footprints date back to uh, the 30s and 40s and 50s. A guy by the name of Ray Wallace, who was a famous prankster, uh, built himself a set of giant shoes, you know, like you know, giant sandals with uh, Bigfoot parts on the bottom. And he would walk around the construction equipment at night after they'd shut down and leave muddy footprints around there just as a prank. 
And then this academy you know, kept on snowballing. So now they're well-documented, multiple ex- examples of different pranksters. Uh, Ray Wallace himself, of course, never confessed to why he was alive, but people have found his Bigfoot shoes in his, uh, in his personal possessions. Perhaps the most famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster, certainly the one I remember, is one where you see a couple of humps above the water. It's largely submerged in this kind of, you know, dinosaur head sticking out. But that was revealed to be just, what, a, a wooden prop or something. Yeah, there have been several several variations on the hoaxing the Loch Ness Monster. The most famous one that's iconic now is what's called the surgeon's photo. And that's the one that looks very much like a plesiosaur with the long necks uh, snaking upward from a body in the water. And when you look closely at it, if, especially if you get the whole photograph and not the cropped version, you'll see that the size of the ripples is gigantic compared to the size of the specimen. And then when the man who did it died, he confessed. It was all just a little toy submarine, which he put a little neck on the top, and then he photographed it really close up to give it the appearance of being gigantic, when in fact it's only about two or three feet long. Is there any cost to this belief? I mean, if people want to believe this, does it really hurt? Is there any, is there any negative impact to our society if people uh, give this credibility? My co-author, Daniel Loxon, is not you know, convinced it's very dangerous. I am a little more, you know, I have a veteran of 40 years of battling creationists in this country, which is a very difficult struggle and a very frustrating one. And I see this as sort of a gateway drug to sloppy thinking and belief in the supernatural and belief in all sorts of unsupported ideas. And that's why I'm more negative about it than Daniel is. And in particular, if you look, for example, at uh, certain cryptids like Nokele Mbembe, the supposed dinosaur in the Congo, or again, the Loch Ness Monster, the only people looking for those today are creationist ministers. And they openly say in their websites and in their publications, they believe that all of evolution will be overthrown if they somehow discover this dinosaur in the Congo or Loch Ness Monster, which is patently ridiculous because it's thousands of different lines of evidence to support the idea of evolution. And to show you how scary that can be, the recent creationist efforts in Louisiana, there are actually schools now that are being ordered to teach that the Loch Ness Monster is real as a gateway drug to creationism. Donald Prothero, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Donald Prothero is a paleontologist, geologist, and former professor at Occidental College. And he's the co-author of Abominable Science, Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids. He did the monster One of the many things that's intriguing in that interview is how low-tech some of those hoaxes were. I mean, we live in a very high-tech world now, but uh, Ray Wallace, with the homemade shoes he made, the homemade Bigfoot shoes, fooled his colleagues for a long time. And then the famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster was really a child's toy. Yeah, well, I think that testifies to how credible uh, the audience for these things was. People want to believe in that. And, you know, as Prothero says, you could just make very simple arguments on the basis of the biological requirements of these guys that they couldn't exist. Loch Ness is not big enough to supply enough food for a pod of Nessies. You, you know, they just couldn't be down there. Is that what the plural of Nessie is? Nessies? Uh, I think Nessie? it's, yes, necessarily Nessies. Yes, yes, it is. I think today, uh, if people were going to make these hoaxes, you know, I'd go for a radio-controlled Loch Ness monster and have it far away so people can only photograph it with, you know, telephoto lenses that are on shaky cameras and they would never be sure. But before you mourn the non-existence of these popular cryptids, not all legendary creatures are imaginary. Remember the discovery of that predatory fish thought to be extinct? Well, maybe not, because the discovery was made in 1938. But now that the coelacanth's genome is mapped, it may provide clues as to how and when finned creatures first flopped onto land. Plus, the ivory-billed woodpecker chips away at our ideas of what is real and what is imaginary. It's a monster mashup on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour 
more about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. The coelacanth has an appearance befitting a monster. It's a large, scaly aquatic predator with a toothy underbite. But more than that, it has odd appendages. It belongs to a group of lobe-finned fishes. Fins project from its body on stalks, and they're supported by the same basic bones as your arms and legs. It's a transition between a fish and a land-crawling animal. But until recently, we only met this creature in its fossilized form. The coelacanth lived from about 400 to 66 million years ago. And after that, it seems to have disappeared from the geologic record. But... But in 1938, one of these coelacanths was discovered in South Africa. And when it was initially described, it was quite the zoological sensation throughout the world. This wasn't a blurry photo of a child's bathtub toy or a collection of fantastic anecdotes. It was a living coelacanth. Now, that's what we call solid evidence of existence. Geneticist Chris Amamiya says the discovery was serendipitous. A woman who was just starting out as a curator of a museum in South Africa happened across this specimen that was brought in by a captain of a trawler. And, of course, she reached out to uh, the authorities, as it were, uh, one guy in particular. And, in fact, it was validated that this lineage of fish was thought to have gone extinct 70 million years ago. So this guy didn't just go fin to nose with dinosaurs. He largely predated the dinos. The coelacanth was dubbed the living fossil But there's nothing that really proves your existence quite like having your genome decoded and published. Dr. Amamiya led a team that recently did just that. The DNA of this large ancestral fish may provide clues as to how finned creatures first flopped onto the land to become four-footed tetrapods. And our understanding of the fish has come a long way since the museum curator, Marjorie Courtney Latimer, first sketched her discovery. And she needed a big sketch pad because this was no guppy. They're about a meter long. And uh, if you looked at a coelacanth, you would see that it is really quite prehistoric looking. It does look like a very ancient kind of creature. And when it was first, when she drew this drawing and sent it to the experts, she drew a figure that really looked like almost like a lizard. And the first impression by the expert said, oh gosh, this really looks like a reptile or a lizard. The most striking feature that makes it really stand out are these fins that have these, they're kind of like paddles, and they sort of look like limbs. And J.L.B. Smith, the expert who I was referring to, he called it old forelegs. Old forelegs, but not F-O-R-E, F-O-U-R. That's right. (laughs) Kind of a play on words. That's right. Okay, now, now this, uh, and one of the alluring things about this find is that it... uh, represents, apparently, a transitional species between fish and tetrapods, you know, four-legged critters that eventually colonized land, which, after all, there wasn't too much life on land before three or four hundred million years ago, something like that. And this was one of the first uh, animals to colonize the continents. Is that correct? Well, you got the fish part right. This is definitely a fish. And, in fact, when we look at the genes... The genes themselves are much more similar to the tetrapods. So this thing is a fish, but it really has, genetically, it's more like a tetrapod. I should say that this organism still lives in the ocean. It's very much aquatic. It's not one of these organisms that actually crawled up on land, as it were. However, there are several other transitional forms that have been described from the fossil record, most recently tectolic, which is a form that has been found in Nunavut, Canada. And these other forms are better candidates for those kinds of transitional forms that would have come out on land, as it were, and and become tetrapods. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting thing because these fish, uh, at least on the basis of what I've uh, read about them, they live in very deep water today. They don't don't sound to me like uh, critters that have any interest in pawing their way up onto the shore 
uh, just for a re- recreation or just because there's a lot of uncolonized real estate there. I mean, were their ancestors different in that regard? What would be, if you will, the evolutionary incentive to develop these fleshy fins that you could use as kind of primitive legs? Yes, we certainly know that coelacanths are a much wider group than just this form that exists in the deep oceans. And of course, the ones that live in the oceans, they've developed adaptations for living deep in the ocean. And so in that particular case, there'd certainly be an incentive to develop appendages that will enable you to scud along on the bottom and inhabit environments that hadn't previously been inhabited. Of course, you'd still have to develop the proper kinds of air-breathing sorts of adaptations as well as the kinds of things that you need to prevent the skin from drying out and things like that. Well, your team, as I understand it, is uh, sequencing the genome of this fish, of the coelacanth. It has... uh 2.8 2.8 billion units of DNA. What, what, what were the big questions you had going in? Were you trying to figure out what genetic changes were required to produce uh, paddles and eventually legs out of uh, what were just fins? Basically, the sequencing of the genome allows us to do biology from the inside out. We can ask what genes are there and then do the kinds of experiments to really validate whether these genes are involved in certain processes and to try to come up with an evolutionary scenario as to how these things could have happened. Well, did you find any genes that, uh, you know, form limbs? I mean, any, <laughs> you know, here's the leg gene. You have, if you have one of these, and you'll, you'll make a leg. We certainly have found many candidate kinds of sequences. Not all of them are genes per se, but these are sequences that can drive the expression of these genes in certain tissues, such as the limbs. And one of these that was described in the paper clearly is involved in forming the what's known as the autopod. This is a tetrapod-specific innovation. It's basically the forelimb and the high limb, And it allowed us to see whether or not that sequence was truly expressed in a, a limb-specific fashion, which would tell us that the formation of the autopod was already in progress in the case of the coelacanth and most likely some of these other kinds of transitional species. Well, then finally, Chris, uh, what do you think are the chances that we'll find another cryptid, another, if you will, living fossil, although I realize that that's a loaded term now, but one that's as dramatic as the coelacanth, or have we sort of uh, fished to the bottom of the barrel, as it were? Well, you know, I would have said that it's not very possible that uh, things could have survived without ever being found, but, you know, just a few years ago, There were some very unusual kinds of sharks that have been discovered, and critters are being discovered all the time. We just haven't looked very hard in some cases. And in some cases, certainly very difficult to look in places that uh, are uninhabitable for us, but may not necessarily be for one of these critters. Well, Chris Amamiya, thank you so very much for being with us today. It's a fun time. Thank you. Chris Amamiya is a biologist and geneticist at the University of Washington and the Ben Arroyo Research Institute in Seattle. Now, from the deep ocean to the lush woods of the southeastern United States. Now listen carefully to this scratchy recording made in Louisiana in the 1930s. That's a sound that orthonologists would dearly love to hear again, but they haven't for years. It's the call of the ivory-billed woodpecker, and that recording is a treasured part of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. This rare audio snippet is one of the few of the ivory-billed, one of the largest woodpeckers in the world, a bird that hovers close to extinction. Indeed, many think it has vanished. Sightings of the bird in the late 1990s and the 2000s sent hopes soaring that maybe the bird hadn't disappeared, but there's been contention over each piece of evidence and debate over whether it's conclusive. Some evidence consists of those ubiquitous blurry photographs and eyewitness accounts, yet this isn't a mythological bird. It lived, and it may still. But because we don't know for sure, the ivory build has been lifted higher than the old-growth trees that are its cherished habitat, to a kind of mythic status, and it's also a symbol of what we lose when biologically diverse ecosystems are destroyed. John Fitzpatrick is director of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University, and he's led teams to the southeastern forests to test claims of and to search for the ivory-billed woodpecker. 
The ivory-billed woodpecker was a was a remarkable bird. Um, it was North America's largest woodpecker, and it lived in spectacular old-growth bottomland forests and uh, tall pine forests of the southeastern U.S. predominantly. And it was really an iconic bird of these primeval, uh, deep, dark American forests. So it was a, it was really an American icon. And so when it flew, it had very large white patches on uh, both the front and the back end of the wings. It uh, dwarfed the look-alike bird that is still around in abundance today called the pileated woodpecker. It's uh, superficially similar to the pileated, but actually much bigger. Uh, so spectacular in its vivid black and white and bright red crest that uh, it earned this nickname Lord God Bird because people, when they saw it, would drop to their knees saying, Lord God, what a bird. Now, you're you're speaking of the bird in the past tense, which may give away the ending to this story. <laughs> but I wonder if you could describe what was happening with a scattered report of sightings of the bird around, say, the mid or the early 2000s. Sure. The first big controversial sighting was actually in 1999 in the Pearl River of uh, Louisiana, not far from New Orleans, when a, uh, a young graduate student uh, was out hunting, actually, and reported seeing a pair of ivory-billed woodpeckers together in the Pearl River. And that launched a pretty extensive search, uh, especially in the year 2001, 2002. We were a part of that search where we went in with audio equipment trying to see if we could get any sound recordings. Nobody recited that bird in the Pearl River, uh, and we got no recordings of that were in any way resembling ivory-billed woodpeckers. But then in 2004, this amazing event happened, which was a kayaker reporting seeing an ivory-billed woodpecker in eastern Arkansas. And that's where the Lab of Ornithology got involved again because our editor of our magazine went down, saw the report, went down with a friend, went through, was guided by the same kayaker, and lo and behold, they both saw it. And I know Tim Gallagher well. He's a lifelong naturalist and a very careful, scientifically trained individual. Described that event to me in my office uh, a few days later when he got back to Ithaca, and I grilled him for an hour or more about exactly what he saw, what else it could have been, and what he described right down to the details there was no doubt in their minds that both wings had very large white patches on the trailing edge of the wing. So at this point, your team at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology got in, involved in this investigation, and it meant going down, I believe, to Arkansas and to Florida. And and what exactly did that entail? Did you have sure. to sit in a in a tent or glide in a canoe for days on end waiting to spot this bird? Think months. Um, and think scale. What we recognized was uh, getting evidence of a bird that is believed extinct is a tall order in the bottomland swamp habitats of this bird's existence. The most important thing from my standpoint from the beginning was if there's a surviving ivory bill out there, it definitely had parents, and it's conceivable that its parents are still alive too. And so if there's a breeding pair of ivory bills somewhere, that's what our real quarry would be. And so to do that, we needed to amass a bunch of people. Uh, we raised some money. We got a bunch of individuals who could commit literally months and months of their lives to be out there in the woods. We put automated cameras in various places that looked possible. We did long, very painstaking transects looking for holes that appeared to be of the right size and quality for ivory bills. Very importantly, we did an extensive job of placing sound recording devices throughout the um, big woods habitats to see if we could, and, and these are passive recording equipment that would record continuously all day long and begin to analyze these recordings to see if we could pick up sounds of this woodpecker. Well, let's, let's stop on that point for a moment because Cornell University has an extraordinary collection of bird sounds in its Macaulay Library. Do you have a recording of the ivory bill on record? How, how would you have known what it sounded like? We do indeed have a recording of the ivory bill. We have, in fact, the only one uh, ever made. Uh, it was made by Arthur Allen, the founder of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in the 1930s. And uh, it's a very famous recording. Uh, there are several different uh, call types that are in that recording. 
And uh, we even located, as we studied that recording, there was a point at which uh, you can hear it fly away from the uh, nest hole, and so we could actually get the wing beat frequency of the bird taking off from the trunk, and that turned out to be important in our analysis of the uh, now famous or infamous Luno video that uh, our colleague David Luno got in the big woods in April of 2004. Our colleague got this video just a few seconds of a bird taking off from uh, about eight feet up on a trunk of a tree, and that video bears very strong resemblance to an ivory bill woodpecker flying away. So you said that the, um, the Luno video was controversial, and how so, and what was the conclusion of what was on the video in the end? Yeah, good, really good question, and, uh, and educated individuals differ in their interpretations of that video to this day. The problem with the video is that it was uh, just seven seconds long and only about two and a half seconds is this bird in any kind of a decent view in the video. It's flying away from the camera. It's very quick. What it shows to uh, many individuals, including us still to this day, is unequivocal evidence of very large white patches on the rear end of the wing, which would make it an ivory bill woodpecker. The alternative interpretation is that those white patches are blurred towards the back just by the speed of the wing beats on the video frames, and that those represent the white wing linings of pileated woodpeckers. So the alternative view of the Luno video is that it is a pileated woodpecker escaping in front of the canoe, not an ivory bill. What do you believe? Um, my view, as as well as many others, is that the evidence leans towards ivory bill. I still think it's more consistent with an ivory bill woodpecker than with a pileated woodpecker. The fact that it is debatable, however, I totally acknowledge. It's a video that doesn't do, by definition, it's not conclusive because there are others who view it differently. And yet you referred to the bird in the past tense. Is it considered extinct at this moment? I don't. I'm not ready to call the bird extinct. We have uh, the big woods is a thousand square miles of forest. We did a very good job of searching the most accessible and best looking of the parts of the big woods. But there are hundreds of square miles out there still that were searched only lightly or not at all because they're privately owned. There are lots of examples of birds around the world, uh, organisms of many kinds around the world that have been believed extinct for much longer than this one and uh, turn up to be present again. But there's an interesting follow-up, which I haven't talked much about because uh, we know that it's inconclusive. But in the winter of 2008-2009, this is much later than we were even investing in this, a colleague of ours actually got a very long uh, video recording that's extremely interesting because it sounds like an ivory bill woodpecker giving a call about every 10 seconds. It was a bird that he knew was at the treetops out of his visual sight, and he never got it on the video screen, but in the video you can hear this single note being given over and over again about every 10 or 15 seconds. And the characters of that note are precisely the same as the signature of the ivory bill woodpecker's recordings in the 30s. And that was in 2008, 2009. So the possibility still exists that that bird is out there. Can you can you imitate its call or its distinctive knock, either one? Sure. The uh, The call is a very high-pitched. It was likened to, a, to the sound of a tin horn. And um, I can actually do a pretty decent job here. And its drum was very distinctive. It has a uh, a double drum, a sort of boom. I could try it on the mic here. That's what it would do. It'd wake up in the morning and go. It's a it's one of the most spectacular birds that's ever lived. Uh, it stands for much more than just uh, the existence or disappearance of a species. It really is an emblem of a whole ecosystem and of extinction itself. John Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. I've enjoyed talking about it. John Fitzpatrick is director of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University. Next up, vanished animals that may yet return with the help of powerful DNA technology. Now, some of those radical high-tech advancements in biology and genetics offer hope for reanimating species we've lost. 
But can we really walk with the dinosaurs one day? It's a monster mashup on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. From Big Picture Science. Are you earning and investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next-level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. It's a non-stop disappearing act, and it's heartbreaking. Thousands of species that once sauntered, swam, and soared across the planet have vanished. Here are a few examples. The woolly mammoth, moa, the Chinese river dolphin, the great auk, the dodo, Pyrenean ibex, saber-toothed tiger, and the Tyrannosaurus rex. All gone. They've disappeared for a variety of reasons. Natural forces, in some cases, an ice age or a meteor impact. Or in the case of the ivory-billed woodpecker, as we heard, the destruction of its natural habitat by humans. Other animals are victims of overzealous hunting habits. Whatever the reason, the curtain has come down on many extraordinary creatures. But there may be a second act. Biology and genetics have come a long way, and before we get too comfortable referring to these animals in the past tense, consider that the tools of science may be able to reverse the direction of time's arrow. Billions of passenger pigeons filled the skies of North America in the 19th century. By the early 20th, they were hunted to extinction. The last passenger pigeon, named Martha, died in a zoo in 1914. And while biologist Ben Novak acknowledges he can't bring Martha back, he does hope to restore her species. I'm Ben Novak. I work for Revive and Restore as the lead coordinating scientist of The Great Comeback, which is our organization's project to bring the passenger pigeon back to life. In fact, I believe you've been known to identify yourself as the one who's hired to bring the passenger pigeon back to life. Yeah, that's a that's a I guess lead coordinator is the is the technical on paper term, but yeah, essentially I'm, I've been hired to bring it back to life. Well, we'll talk about how you're planning on doing that, but first, Ben, we spoke with John Fitzpatrick about the ivory-billed woodpecker, and he believes that the bird still exists, which which raises the question of how do we know when an animal has gone extinct? Well, there there's a policy held by the International Union of Conservation of Nature. Uh, that states that any population of organisms, species, subspecies, is not declared extinct until it has been failed to be cited for 60 years. And that's a confirmed sighting. So how, how a sighting is confirmed uh, is, is a rigorous process. I mean, nobody can just come in and say, well, I saw a Tasmanian tiger. Clearly, they're still out there. I mean, confirmed sightings usually have to have some sort of physical evidence, a photograph that's clearly not fake. A video is great. Actual animal material, of course, is the best. Now, you're part of a team of scientists. I won't call them outliers, although I think they have been referred to as such that are trying to achieve something quite extraordinary, which is to bring extinct species back. And of all the species that there are that have gone, sadly have gone extinct, you have seized on the uh, passenger pigeon as your project. Why the passenger pigeon? Well, in one sense, the passenger pigeon is a model species for trying to develop the science for bringing an extinct animal back to life, for being able to know whether or not you've really brought the right thing back if you've succeeded. Because of the intimate history we have with it, we have a great deal of specimens to work with, and we have a great deal of written records of where the birds flew, how they behaved, so that when we try to reproduce a new passenger pigeon, we actually have a definition of what that species is to compare our new animal to. And, and we have enough material to work with, uh, with the living relatives and, and knowledge in this kind of area pushing forward to use this species as, as the test subject for making this the kind of process that might apply to, say, oh, a, a great auk in the future or a heath hen or maybe even a dodo bird. And its, its cousins, uh, the passenger pigeon cousins are the bantail pigeon for one, the rock pigeon, right? Yeah, so the closest relative we're working with 
that we'll use as kind of the model animal for recreating passenger pigeons is the West Coast bantail pigeon, which actually has a lot in common with the passenger pigeon. They look very different from each other in color and shape, but for, uh, for lifestyle, they're very similar. Well, let's, let's talk about how you're going to do this, the science of it. Yep. So you have some DNA of the passenger pigeon. You don't have a complete genome. And then you use its cousins, as you mentioned. And, and what do you do with that genetic material? So the technology being developed right now that is the technology that sparked all of this is called CRISPR technology. And that's an acronym that uh, is, is quite long. It's a, it's a particular biological complex that was discovered in bacteria. And it's used in bacteria for particular types of uh, repairing DNA damage. And these, these CRISPR enzymes are capable of coming in with a, a healthy chunk of DNA and cutting out the bad part and swapping in the healthy part. And so this idea was harnessed in the sense of for de-extinction or, or biomedicine, gene therapy, things like that, uh, is you can take a, a cell from a band-tailed pigeon for our project and using the sequences we have of the genomes, we'll identify particular mutations that are different between the two species that we need to change to recreate a passenger pigeon genome. And we can synthesize those little mutations um, in a tiny chunk of DNA and stick that chunk of DNA into the CRISPR complex, and it'll have an RNA guide that guides it into the specific spot it needs to go in the band-tail pigeon genome. And then we will use band-tail pigeon living genomes, the cells, to engineer our passenger pigeons. So you have an incomplete genome of the passenger pigeon, and where did the DNA come from? It comes from museum tissues, stuffed birds, taxidermy specimens. Every museum in the world has a natural history collection with these, these you know, stuffed animals, uh, museum skins. They're not, they don't look like, say, a hunting trophy. They just, they're stiff. They're, they're really just for studying color. But they preserve the skin, the feet, certain elements of the bird. And so someone like me will come along to a museum that has a passenger pigeon, and I'll cut a tiny little pinhead-sized uh, piece of tissue off of one of the toes. Because at the toe, you get a little bit of skin, tiny little bit of the muscle and the sinew that were part of the foot. So you get a nice little concentrated bit of tissue, and then we'll get the DNA out of that. And eventually, you come up with combining the information and the experiments to creating an actual bird and you'll and you will take the cells and actually produce a little baby bird and ideally it grows up and looks like a passenger pigeon and flies like a passenger pigeon and and lives like one so the idea is you put this dna into a reproductive cell of a either a bantail or a rock pigeon and this becomes the mother of this little baby passenger pigeon. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Well, this raises the ethical questions. And we're really talking about the science here. And on a show that we did, um, we spoke with you and we did raise the ethical questions. And if people would like to listen to that, that's called the de-extinction show. So we won't cover all those here. But I will ask you just if you can give me a good argument, just because we can do this, should we do it? What is the strongest case for bringing an animal back? Well, the strongest case... Many people have argued different things. For me, the strongest case is is producing ecosystems that are going to work in the future the more we change the planet. I think a lot of people have this idea that somehow we can loop back to some historical point and restore habitats in a way that the world will just resume on its natural course to how it was supposed to be. And that's, that's impossible. So, you know, you think about trying to put mammoths and ancient bison and particular animals into the tundra and turn the tundra into prairie, you change the way climate change happens on the planet on a very large scale. That engineering and other technological tools, rather than using animals, cannot really give us. But I wonder if there's also an awesome factor here, a wow factor, and that you feel we feel we missed out on experiencing these incredible animals. In a sense, I think the awe factor of, of de-extinction is a very powerful argument, but it, it misses kind of the detail where it comes from. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, this is really cool, but I think this is the type of innovation that's really innate in humanity. 
I mean, we have had a fascination with biodiversity, the life on this planet, um, from the very beginnings of the roots of what make us human. The first art on cave walls are wild animals running in stampedes, and our first gods are humans with animal heads. And there's no kid I've ever met that didn't have some fascination with some weird, bizarre animal from some island or remote forest somewhere. And this idea of de-extinction, I mean, it's, it's kind of the next phase of how much biodiversity has to do with what makes us human. Is you know, I don't think, at least I, I would hope I don't meet anyone that, that, you know, doesn't want to keep every type of animal we have, every type of plant, every bit of life we have around right now, and also, you know, miss out on trying to reclaim some of the bits that we've lost in our march forward. Ben Novak, thank you so much for coming into the studio and talking to us. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Ben Novak is a visiting biologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's the lead coordinating scientist of The Great Comeback for the Revive and Restore Project at the Long Now Foundation. Certainly one of the interesting things about what Ben was saying is that if some creature did exist, even though it, it, it's gone now, there's at least the possibility of bringing it back. And in the de-extinction movement, scientists are working with the DNA of animals that did exist, not mythical animals that we have no evidence for existing. That's right. He's not going to be able to bring back Nessie, for example, if Nessie never existed in the first place. If you're going to say that it's out there now, you better have some really good evidence. I mean, you know, something like, well, what we have for the coelacanth, we actually bring one in. How do you compare uh, scientists that are looking for evidence of the ivory-billed woodpecker and people who are looking for evidence of Nessie or... Bigfoot or another creature? I think part of it is simply uh, the fact that you have trained people looking for the woodpecker, people who understand the woodpecker, and of course they know what they're looking for because the woodpecker existed in recent history. But beyond that, beyond that, they are not willing to say, yes, it's out there now until the evidence is very, very good. Yes, we have photographs of Nessie and Yeti and, and, and woodpeckers, but the people who think that the Yeti is out there think that the evidence is already good enough. And the woodpecker people are very careful. They say, it could be out there. This might actually be a photo of it, but we're not absolutely sure yet. And that's the difference between science and pseudoscience. Thank you to our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, Monster Mashup from Big Picture Science. We devote one episode a month to critical thinking to keep those brain cells fast on the draw. You can find more Big Picture Science and Skeptic Check on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might just find and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it's a worthy species proven to exist, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.